The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. One of the things that executives always tell me they wake up and wonder is how can we get more productivity out of our website and can we spend less and produce even more or do we have to keep pouring resources into a seemingly bottomless pit? To answer that question and to address those issues, Oliver Palmer. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joel. Great to be here. Hey, so first of all, uh, the last word, the word here kind of tells me that you're from Australia, well, Australia or one of those, uh, you know, faraway places. Did you grow up in one of those places? Yeah, I'm Australian. I'm here in Melbourne. Yep. You're Australian. You were born in Australia. Gotcha. Born in Australia. Yep. Yeah. Some of the words, you know, you kind of got the English side, the, the American way, and some of it, it's uh, it, it's a dead ringer for sure. You could just, it's a dead giveaway. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm unusual as well. My mom's English. So most Australians think I sound unusual too. So. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, yeah. Kind of that kind of combo thing. So, so listen, so um, conversion is, uh, you know, and we're talking about, you know, converting people who come to a website into buyers of goods, right? That's what we're talking about. Uh, that whole concept, uh, you know, is very mysterious to a lot of us. And, and I understand that you're going to help us to demystify the mystery of conversion. Indeed. So, so tell us, so, uh, you know, do you have to continue to pour money into a bottomless pit or is there an end to the madness? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ever an end necessarily, but the pit shouldn't be bottomless. And most importantly, the pit should be measured, you know, um, oftentimes when, when people think about their websites in terms of a big build every three, four years, everyone stops. They probably spend six months, maybe even a year working on, we're launching our new website. It's going to be great. And they think of it, it's going to be a miracle fix. It's going to throw away all of the bad things about their old website. Everything's going to be good. All of a sudden, everyone's going to be happy. What everyone forgets is every, every old website was once a new website, you know? And when you go for that big build again, you throw away lots of the good things and you introduce new problems if you're not measuring it effectively. So um, what I help people do often is really move away from this idea of the big build toward continuous improvement uh, through experimentation. So you're, so you're not, you're not a website designer yourself. That's not what you do. No, you, you help companies kind of steer and navigate. So you're almost an integrator in between the, uh, the company and their builders. Is that right? 
Well, other aspects as well. I would say the company and their customers, probably first and foremost, and uh, and then uh, you know the, the people that build the website, or, or sometimes I'll help with that too. Um, but the biggest thing I do, I think, is probably connecting businesses with the people that use their website, which is something that people just typically don't do surprisingly, you know, when, when most companies go to build a website, they have a very good idea of what they want to do. They're in the purple widget business. They know the purple widget business inside out. They need a new website. They go, they call up an agency. They say, Hey, we make purple widgets. We need a new website. They write some copy. Um, they commission a designer, they build the site, but surprisingly rarely in 95% of cases, nobody actually ever talks to a customer in that process. And the issue is you've got the people in the purple widget business, they've got the curse of knowledge. You know, they know that business inside out. So there's lots of assumed knowledge and, and things that they know about their business, which are absolutely obvious to them, which don't make sense to customers. So there's a real disconnect there that I, I try and bridge. Yeah. That, and that, that, listen, that happens in every single business. It happens in sales calls. I mean, you know, people who know a lot, talking to people who know a little, I mean, that it's very difficult to kind of kind of do that. So would you say that your role is is is, is an advocacy role and you advocate, advocate, let's say, for the consumer or, or I mean, do you think of it that way? Because because it sounds like sometimes, it. sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I advocate for the business. Right. Uh, but the best way to advocate for the business oftentimes is to advocate for the consumer. You know, you don't lose money by helping your customers get more of what they want. Obviously, there's there's a tension between business goals and and uh, you know customer goals that you have to navigate. But I think you know think about some of the most successful companies on earth. Think about Amazon, who have been famously customer centric the whole way through. You know, it's it's a profitable path to take if you if you do it correctly. Let's let's talk about Amazon for a second because uh, you know I, there's something about Amazon. I don't I don't know what it is, but because I'm not sensitive enough to be able to describe this, but. You go on their site. It's very easy to find things. It's very easy to buy things. It's very easy to, you know, they, they have your credit card. They have your profile. Uh, they, they know what to do. They, they do it. It's like super quick. You get the stuff tomorrow and, and then you're on to your next job, whatever the thing is. Other mm -hmm. websites, it just seems like it's such a hassle. I, I, I mean, Amazon has set this bar and all of us have been kind of become used to Amazon and anything that is substandard sticks out like a sore thumb. So how is it the companies are still not up to speed and and like what's what's the what's the backstory i mean help us understand that I think I think a critical part of the backstory is that Amazon are absolute pioneers of experimentation and incremental optimization. So Amazon don't relaunch their website every three years. The Amazon website has looked more or less the same for like twenty years. You know, same with Facebook. Um, lots of these big companies because what they're they're running experimentation programs to um, change small targeted features based on hypotheses and user insights to try and make things incrementally better. They're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I would, I would say Facebook is in a different category because they do make substantial changes and like they'll make a design change and like you were used to it the old way and then now they're doing it a new way. So Amazon doesn't do that. Amazon really doesn't play around. I mean, they, they, it's, it's modern, it's fresh, it looks nice, but, but it, it doesn't look stale or old or, you know, whatever, but I don't know. It just, it just always seems to work. 
Well, I mean, what I would say is, is it may seem like Facebook does make big bang changes periodically, but that wouldn't happen before they've tested those changes on millions of different users first. Yeah. I'm, I must have been one of the test cases or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Possibly. But that's I think a, that's, I mean, that's, that's a possibility. So where did this, this background come from? How did, uh, how did you get yourself into this uh, situation? So back in, uh, I think about 2008, I was, um, I was living in, in London in the UK and I was contracting to a no win, no fee law firm, helping them um, just with kind of general web stuff, helping them build out their websites. Um, now they specialized in um, class action lawsuits for people that have asbestos cancer, which is called mesothelioma. And mesothelioma is a word that I'd only ever heard before because I don't know if it's still the case, but then it was famously the most expensive keyword that you could buy on Google ads. Um, Google ads was a lot cheaper back then. Um, so it probably costs an untold amount today, but then it costs a hundred pounds, um, maybe one or $200 per click. So it's incredibly expensive term to advertise against. For these guys, it was worth it because they were recruiting people that had asbestos cancer uh, for big class action lawsuits. Um, and they would sue, in this case, they would sue, I think the British Navy and government is where most people were exposed to it. And then they would sue again for their expenses. So every photocopy costs 50 bucks or whatever it is. So it was a profitable business for them, even if it cost them a huge amount to recruit plaintiffs. But then at that time, Google introduced this tool called Google Website Optimizer. So this was really the world's first consumer A-B testing tool. So back in the day, Amazon, they've been running A-B tests for years. Theirs is, is a triumph of having a culture of data and experimentation over opinion. And I think that's- share Just real quick, because that's a jargon term. What, yeah. Just tell us what A-B, what does that mean? A-B testing means- Instead of having, you know, back in the old days, you would say, uh, we want to, we're going to do this on our homepage or on our landing page. And we have to make a decision around what is the headline? What's the proposition? Even what's the price? How do we price it? What's the image that we use? All of these aspects of um, both the way that you present your offer and even the fundamentals of the offer itself, such as the price, you can use an A-B testing tool to show one version to a control group, another version to a variant group, and maybe another version to subsequent groups, and then measure what everyone does. And you might find that actually the version which has a more expensive price counterintuitively performs better in terms of conversion uh, than the cheaper price. You know, it's a it's an exercise in in running experiments, really. So it's kind of a way of showing consumers uh, something and say which one, you know, uh, which one do they like better and which one produces better? And that's how the company picks how they move forward. Right. Yeah. And I mean, but the consumer, it's not like a focus group because you don't know that you're in the experiment. Right. Uh, right. It's, it's, you, li it's actually live. It's live. Yeah. And so yeah. you're just, we're, we're deciding to track certain metrics like revenue per visitor, how many people added to bag, how many people came through to the checkout and so on. So when we do this with a large enough sample, we can get a, a very good read as to, you know, generally how our assumptions were wrong. You know, what I've learned from this over the years is whatever I think is going to work, the opposite is true. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
Um, that means if we ever go to Vegas and you want to bet on black, I'm betting on red. How about that? Okay. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. You know, I remember 10, 10 or 15 years ago, they came out with this, uh, there was some retail tool that said, uh, you know, that like a, like a new kind of key metric, like a statistic or something or a metric about stuff left in the shopping cart or abandoned shopping carts. And that was like a revolutionary thing. What are some of the big things that, that companies and executives are measuring, you know, some of our listeners are probably technology related people, but a lot of them are not. So for the ones that are not, what are some of the things people are focused on? You know, I mean, granted, you know, that, that left in the shopping cart was a big deal 10 years ago and they're still probably looking at it, but what are, what are some of the things people are looking at? I think often the issue is people are obsessing over the wrong metrics. So, you know, most, most businesses have got Google Analytics installed and Google Analytics will give you a bunch of reports that will sort of give you a bit of a read as to what's happening in your business but or on your website. But it'll typically be, it's out of the box. You know, it's a free tool, you install it and it tells you, it gives you a very generic view of things like how many people came to your website, where they came from, how many people purchased, um, you know, how many people bounced. So that is how many people landed on your website, didn't click on anything or do anything and left. Um, and oftentimes people kind of look at, people look at these numbers, uh, which don't necessarily actually relate to their business. They're not tooled to their business. And I think instill altogether too much importance, uh, in them. Well, um, so what should they be looking at? I mean, what are the things they should be paying attention to? I think that it's a long way of saying it really depends on your business. Um, one of the things that I do with clients is I help them build out a, a measurement plan because we're just looking at, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what business your listeners are in, but if you are in, um, uh, you know, if you've got a, um, a SaaS app or you've got an e-commerce business or you've got a, um, you're in financial services, the metrics that you're optimizing for will be very different in each industry, but also um, in each business. You know, I think one of the a really, really crucial exercise that too many people don't do is actually transpose the metrics that run their business into the indicators that they can get out of their website. What's what's um, if some people are B two B, some people are B two C. What what are the big differences that you would think about first for one versus the other? I mean, so you know, what are the big things to consider for B two C? What are the big things to consider for B two B? I think the the big thing about B two B is that people are a lot more forgiving in B two B. The customer experience in B two B is generally not very good. You know, it's rare when you're, you are shopping B2B or engaging with um, the website or online services in a B2B way. It's really rare that those, experience, uh, those experiences are as high quality and as delightful as what you get on consumer level services. And I think the reason for that is it's kind of monopoly, you know, um, there's not so much competition typically, and those audiences are more forgiving. Well, okay. So, uh, so they're more forgiving, but, but they still got to have some stuff. So what stuff should they have? When you say stuff, what do you mean? You know, what, what kinds of uh, considerations, what are the metrics they should be studying? What are, what are the biggest things they should worry about? You know, what, what are the things they should think about? 
In general, I don't I don't try to set too much store in data without underpinning it by research. So one of the things that I often say to clients is so many people come to me and they 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 have become enamored of the idea of A-B testing and experimentation. And they read these brilliant case studies about people getting incredible results with it. You know, there's a famous case study in in the website optimization game, I suppose, which <clears throat> talks about the the original Obama campaign, which I think was, was maybe 2008. Um, so they were using the, the tool I referred to before, Google Website Optimizer, and they very famously ran a campaign landing page and they tested a combination of headlines, images, <clears throat> videos and call to actions and famously raised an incremental $63 million in revenue. And that's almost the case study that set off a whole industry. One of the tools that I, I use a lot with my clients called Optimizely was founded by one of the people who worked on that Obama campaign. And he built this tool off the back of his experience with that Google tool, but it's almost, um, it's almost misleading in a way because you don't, it's rare that you run an experiment that generates $63 million in incremental revenue. It's very rare. Um, and so people hear these case studies, they get excited about it and they say, yeah, we want to do AB testing. And almost invariably I say to them, we have to run user research first. We have to talk to your customers and we just run customer interviews. You know, that's rather than thinking about out of the box tracking or metrics or data or anything like that, it's like old fashioned customer research should be your first step for uncovering insights. And then that can feed into your measurement plan too. And you can, that can help you decide what you should be measuring and how you can track things ongoing. I mean, assuming that companies have probably done some level of research is the research that they've done for their offline business translate into the online world or they have to do all, all new stuff? Very much depends, but often the research that I do will be talking to customers and running them through, you know, setting them tasks on the website in particular. So if the website's where we want to run the experiments, then uh, we'll set the tasks on the website and say, right, you know, sit down here, go through the process of buying something and we'll, we'll watch over Zoom or something and watch as they go through that process, verbalize their thoughts aloud and ask lots of probing questions and try to understand what are the... What are the barriers? You know, what's what's stopping them? Um, for instance, I well, actually the very first time I ran user research on an e-commerce site, um, I was uh, sort of running the e-commerce side of a magazine retailer here in Melbourne, probably about ten or fifteen years ago, called Magnation. And they had bricks and mortar uh, magazine stores. Bad business to get into at that stage, um, but also sold magazine subscriptions online. And we're importing magazines and so on. And so this site called user testing is a, a way to do remote unmoderated user testing. And it's, it's incredible. I recommend it to anyone that has a website that they make money out of. You go there and you set some tasks. Um, you say, go through the process of buying something, verbalize your thoughts aloud. You get back a video of uh, their screen and an audio recording of their thoughts as they go through the process. And we put the insight we got from that is we said, right, go through the process of buying a magazine online. And uh, people did it and they got to the final page and it said on the, on the checkout, it said, you'll receive your first magazine in uh, eight to 12 weeks or something. Now that's actually the timeline that um, certainly at that stage, magazine distributors were running on. You know, these guys have got janky old matrix printers in warehouses and stuff. They're a bit slow. Plus there's also the timeline of publishing. Let's say some magazines come out once a month, some come out once a quarter. There is that period. 
we were, we thought we were adhering to best practice. We thought we were being like Amazon, you know, being really upfront saying you will receive this in X period. People got to that page. We tested five people, five out of five said, that is a joke. You guys have got to be kidding. I'm not waiting eight to 12 weeks. And we really tentatively, very cautiously removed it because we thought that everyone was going to, we were going to be getting, um, you know, complaint phone calls and emails out the wazoo. And we realized none of our competitors were saying that we removed it and we immediately saw something like a 5% shift in conversions. So huge amount of revenue increase from running that small test that took us outside of the business we're in and sort of put us in the shoes of the customer. Do you think that people get uh, good enough at this that they can kind of predict what the outcome is going to be? I mean, are there some people that are good enough that they can make prediction about this? Well, I've been doing this for about 10 years now. And as I said earlier, you know, there's a reason why you're betting the opposite to me at Vegas. No, (laughs) I don't think so. I think it's a constant humility exercise in humility. The more I, the more I, learn, the more I realize I actually have no idea how customers will respond. And that's kind of one of the things I do with my clients when I'm helping them to build out a practice of experimentation. And that's the main, the main thing that I do really, because the technical side of this, this is easy. Technically this, that problem was solved a long time ago, but helping large organizations to shift away from the idea that they are the experts, that they have the battle hardened expertise. Um, they've been hired and, you know, paid a lot of money for all of their experience and their decision-making ability, actually catalyzing that shift in them to understand that they actually really don't make very good decisions. No one really makes very good decisions when you can measure them consistently. That's a big part of what I do is helping to assist with that cultural change. And I think that's one of the reasons why you talked about Amazon before, why they've been so successful about this, because they started as a tech company. They didn't have all of that embedded cultural stuff. They were just, they were engineers who were optimizing and weren't so concerned about opinions. This, this whole area, it's, it's just, it's confusing to people because it, um, you know, it, it just, um, it, it's not it's not science. It's more art than science. And that makes it somewhat difficult. I, I would refute that and say that it really at its best, it's pure science. It's the scientific method. You know, it's it's hypothesis driven. It's measurement. Um, it's, you know, we're coming up with a hypothesis. We're building out an experimental variant to test that hypothesis. And then at the end, we use statistical analysis to understand were we successful or were we not? And then we try and work out why it's like a, it's like a classical scientific experiment. You know, you know what, you know, what it seems to me though, is that uh, the process is scientific. You've made a scientific process to try to figure out the behavior of people who are totally non-scientific. I mean, people are totally random. Now, some, maybe 60% of the people act one way and 40% act another way. Um, does that mean that, you know, when you do the A-B testing that your A does better, but but now you've alienated the 40%, you know, you, you haven't captured the 40%. So how do you, how do you get those 40%? Because there are people who still want something, but now you've chosen to go, you know, so in a certain way, by going with 60, you've leave, leave behind 
Sure, but but you but you can't capture a hundred. Everyone knows you can't capture a hundred percent of the market at any one time. You'll go broke trying to be being something for everyone. So you need to focus on where the biggest opportunities are. So maybe you might you might capture the forty if those customers are more profitable. But if the sixty in aggregate is the better opportunity, go after that. The forty is not for you. Leave them for your competitors. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so it's, um, so it's a way of figuring out, you know, who the, who the 60% are. Uh, but we know that, you know, when we do that, we automatically leave behind some other set of people. Yes and no. I mean, the, the sort of the next step after optimization is personalization as well, which is, you know, if you think about the way that retailers work, um, as I mentioned, one of my clients is a, is a large uh, department store here in Australia and they, frame their business around campaigns. So Christmas campaign, Mother's Day, Easter, um, you know, all of these things, all of these sort of seasonal marketing type campaigns, which marketers use because that's what most people are doing at any one time. So it's the most efficient way to reach them. But they're transitioning away from that, in uh, certainly in terms of their their online store, toward what you might call more trigger-based marketing. So, thinking about important life events, you know, um, starting a family, um, you know, retiring, I don't know, all of these sort of things, all of these important things for individuals that happen at a particular fixed time in your life that you're not doing at the same time as everyone else in the same way that you're doing Christmas or whatever, um, you know, shifting towards marketing to them and understanding to them based on those triggers. And by doing so, it actually opens up much larger groups of people. So in Australia, you know, the dominant culture is Anglo Christianity. Um, uh, Christmas is the dominant seasonal holiday. They don't do anything for Diwali. They don't do anything for Hanukkah, but if they can actually understand their customers um, and, and sense what their needs are on a one-to-one basis at that time, that will allow them to market to and engage them more effectively also well the tools the tools are certainly there to to execute the 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 job seems like they have to gather the data on an input on the input side is they have to somehow find ways to get in and it seems to me like big data already has all the answers i mean they're they're ag data aggregators that probably have all the answers aren't there i mean doesn't that make sense yeah, yes and no. I think it depends how you want to do it. You know, there's there's been a real shift in the industry over the last few years away from relying on third-party data um, to actually having owned data. Um, one of the tools I work with a lot is this brilliant tool called Telium. But if you look at their website, you won't be able to work out what they do. I mean, you'll have no idea because it does so many things and they probably market themselves so ineffectively based on that. But it is, it is a it operates within the the category of tools, which is called a um, a CDP, which is a um, customer data platform. So it's collecting data about your individual customers and using that to assemble them into different segments, behavioral segments, market segments, and so on. And you install tracking on your website to build out your own triggers. You know, if certain people look at, um, you know, baby products or, you know, they buy baby products either in store or uh, on your website, you can deduce from that, okay, they have a child, they are going to have a child, whatever. So building up those pictures through your own data is something that is so much more achievable now than it it has been and, and I think is a probably a more 
reliable and, and, and robust alternative to, to using third-party data aggregators. All right, cool. So, so I asked about uh, B2B before. Uh, anything we need to know about B2C or you know, is that a totally more complicated answer? Uh, I mean, I would say most, most of my work is B2C. So, you know, lots of it is, lots of what we've been talking about, I'm absolutely thinking of with a B2C mindset uh, in mind. But if you have any specific questions about B2C. Um, no, just, just what, what, are the big, what are the big uh, metrics that people need to be paying attention to? What are the big issues that they need to be thinking about? Yeah, uh, I think the big issues they need to be thinking about is uh, is typically that there is a disconnect between uh, their website, the way they've built it, and the way their customers experience it. And I think once you broach that through research, then it's time to start thinking about how you you measure effectively on an ongoing basis. All right. Well, listen. This is a this is a somewhat complicated uh, arena, obviously, and, and like that. But you've done your best to give us the inside track on. Uh, you know, on how this works, the best, smartest and fastest way to, to do it. It's, it sounds like, uh, you know, you have to just go back to the basics and do research and you have to just do studies and then you have to apply that uh, incrementally to your website. And, you know, look, uh, you know, I appreciate you doing that. That makes you an advantage player in our book. So uh, thank you for sharing that with us. I, we really appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much, Joe. All right. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the Inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audavita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.